Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history and our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we have the great honor of speaking with active Navy Rear Admiral Stephen Barnett. Admiral Barnett is a native of Murray County, Tennessee. After graduating from local schools, he attended Tennessee State and Troy State Universities, where he earned his commission at Naval Aviation Officer Candidate School in 1991, becoming a P-3 pilot. He was assigned to various sea patrol squadrons before taking command of Patrol Squadron VP-47 out of Hawaii. Then, Commander Barnett led the squadron on a simultaneous deployment to Japan and Iraq, executing more than 250 missions in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, completing more than 950 sorties, comprising 5,000 hours. He held several shore assignments and commands, including Deputy Director of the Resource Management Division for the Chief of Naval Operations, Commanding Officer of Naval Base Coronado, California, Chief of Staff for Commander, Navy Region Southeast, and Commander, Navy Installations Command, and Deputy Commander, Navy Installations Command. As a flag officer, Admiral Barnett served as Commander, Navy Region Northwest, and Commander, Navy Region Southwest. He assumed command as Commander, Navy Region Hawaii, Commander Naval Surface Group Mid-Pac on June 17th of 2022. His decorations include the Legion of Merit, Meritorious Service Medal, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, Joint Service Commendation Medal, Navy Commendation Medal, and Navy Achievement Medal. Admiral Stephen Barnett, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you. Glad to be here. I always start the show with the toughest question, uh, more of a hypothetical one. There has been a handful of African-American admirals in the history of the United States Navy. There are currently less than a dozen out of the 160 flag officer positions available under Navy rules. What does that fact mean to you? And has that fact had an impact on your career choices as you have moved up the chain of command? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, <clears throat> I think last count, I think it was uh, in your spot on, it's, it's about 10 or 11. And in aviation, uh, there's only uh, three uh, African-American admirals. And we've known each other for quite a while, you know, coming up through the ranks. Uh, what that tells me is that, uh, is that we have a little bit more work that we need to do as an uh, organization um, uh, to make sure that those opportunities are, or that this opportunity is available for uh, 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 people that look like me. And not just people that look like me, for also for other, other races and and also for other other uh, other genders so uh i think we uh i think we do have some work to do i think part of it is about just exposure and uh letting folks know about the opportunities um it does take um it does take about 30 years at least to make an admiral so so to make another steve barnett you know i need to be uh mentoring uh those folks that are are you know pretty much just entering the navy right now which is what i try to do you were born and raised in Columbia, Tennessee. Um, tell me about your childhood years. What was it like for you growing up in Tennessee? Oh, I loved it. It was, uh, you know, Tennessee's a special place. Uh, Middle Tennessee is. Um, I, I uh, grew up, I was, uh, 
I was born there in Columbia, down at Mary County Hospital, and uh, um, went to Brown Elementary School. And as a small fact, I, I met a, a African-American commanding officer of a ship that actually went to Brown Elementary School, too. So that was a small world. We got a, Is that right? we got a chuckle out of, out of that, yeah. And Who I can pass that? you his information a little bit later. Surface warfare officer. So I went to Brown Elementary School, and then I went to um, Withorn. And from Withorn, um, my parents uh, uh, had gotten divorced, so I moved to West Virginia uh, right after that, like my ninth grade year or so. Uh, I'm sorry, my maybe eighth grade year. But um, my family was still back in Tennessee, so I came home every summer uh, to Tennessee. And uh, my uh, um, from my father's side, uh, they lived in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, so I spent summers in Lawrenceburg, I spent summers in Columbia, uh, also had relatives in Chattanooga. So every summer uh, I came back and trekked back to uh, back to the home state, to the volunteer state. And uh, that was instrumental in me deciding to come back to Tennessee to actually go to undergraduate school too at Tennessee State. What kind of student were you? Uh, you mean in high school? Yes. Or I mean in a mid, <laughs> yeah. let's just say, um, I think I was a very inquisitive student. Um, my family often reminds me that uh, when I was in Columbia, um, I read the encyclopedias from A to Z. <laughs> so, so reading was always a uh, was you know was always a, a plus. Um, my mother was a was a teacher. My stepmother was a teacher. So you know it was pretty common to have books around. So I've always been I've always liked to read books. Uh, and my father was actually very promotive of me reading books. So I always had a book, and, and that's something that I even do to this day, and I try to stress to folks. So as far as student goes, I think I was uh, I was an actually uh, probably a B student, I think, coming up through um, up through middle school okay, uh, and junior high school. I think high school, I was probably a B plus. College, uh, let's just say I was probably, um, I was an engineering major in college. So I was one of the few individuals, you know, two years into my engineering classes, I realized, hey, I probably don't want to be an engineer. But I didn't want to quit either. So, so I just rode that horse all the way out. <laughs> At what point did the military enter your mind as a career path? Um, well, I was at Tennessee State University. Uh, it was uh, that's where I met my wife, Daima, and we had you know we, we you know we had a we had a little boy, and uh, I needed uh, you know I was like wow you know I I had interned for a Dupont for a little bit, and I knew I didn't really want to be an engineer, at least not as a younger, as a younger guy. And I was looking for options. I, you know, we had, I had to have childcare, needed some money. So I had a fraternity brother that was actually a recruiter. And I noticed that he had these white, he had a nice looking white uniform on and some shiny gold wings. Uh, he was look, he looked like he was in shape. He always, you know, always had a little pocket change and he didn't, he never recruited me, but I wouldn't ask him about an opportunity of, uh, Hey, you know, what do you do? It looks pretty interesting. About that same time, I had a friend of mine from West Virginia who I went to high school with, who had also visited me from um, West Virginia. I brought him to Tennessee a couple of times and he was at Ohio state in the ROTC program and he flew F-14s. Hmm. And I always thought Marty, and uh, he's heard me say this, so I'll just go ahead and say it. I always thought, I didn't think, I always thought Marty was a simple fella. And I'm like, well, heck, if the Navy's letting you fly F-14s, <laughs> they'll definitely, it's definitely a job for me. So he says, I bet there isn't. So anyway, I went back and I found my, my recruiter friend who at, who was uh, working over at the NRD in Nashville. And I went up to him and said, Hey, I think I want to join the Navy. So 
one day after thermodynamics, um, I joined the Navy. And the wife says, hey, what did you do today? And I said, well, I uh, went to thermodynamics, struggled through that, and I joined the Navy. And she said, you did what? So You didn't talk to uh, her I kinda ahead that, of time. <laughs> I kind of did that on a whim. Wow. I didn't run it by her. And uh, she's still with me. So, <laughs> so that's a blessing. So that's kind of how I stumbled into the Navy. And um, after that, uh, so I graduated from Tennessee State. The program that I joined on was I actually enlisted into the Navy, and they gave me two years to finish my degree. Oh. So I finished my degree in engineering, and I went to aviation officer candidate school, which at the time, you know, that's kind of like officer and a gentleman, you know, Lou Gossett, he had a Marine Corps drill instructor. So that was my uh, first dealing with, with the Navy. Where did you go to officer candidate school? That was in a, uh, a very hot place called Pensacola, Florida. It's probably I, one of the hottest areas I've ever been to in my life. I know it well. Um, I know it well. My husband was yeah. at right pa- at um, Eglin. Right. Ex- so, Air you know, Space. lots of mosquitoes. It definitely <laughs> yes. was hotter. I didn't think anything could get hotter than, than Nashville or Columbia <laughs> in the summer. Uh, but I'll tell you, um, it was a very unique experience there. Um, a lot of running, a lot of yelling. Um, but I can tell you that um, that was probably where... Uh, I grew up the most and, and, and I didn't think I was, I mean, I thought I was a good, uh, I thought I was disciplined when I got there. I thought I was a good guy, but, uh, I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about being in a diverse organization. Uh, I learned a lot of, um, obviously learned how to do a lot of pushups. Uh, but I learned, uh, how to work with a group and how to be part of a team. Um, what kind of pilot did you want to be? Um, so by trade, I'm a naval flight officer, and I knew there were certain things that I wanted to, to do. I can tell you that um, I knew I wanted to get my wings first. So that's the first part. you got to get your wings. And then when you start picking your platform, um, I was kind of drawn towards the plane called, the, as you discussed, the, the a P-3, partially because um, it, it, it was a, it's a team-oriented plane. Uh, primary mission looking for uh, submarines, you know. And it's a team of 10 or 11 folks on a bird and you go out and you're pretty much all alone and, and you know, and unafraid. So you're driving, you know, so you're flying out and you're looking for a mission. So I was looking for a mission that was a team oriented. My friend Marty that flew F-14s, it was just a team of two, right? It was just him and the other guy in the plane, which I thought that was pretty neat. But uh, I wanted a plane, too, that wasn't necessarily tied to the aircraft carrier. Um, P-3s, we would go out and they would pretty much uh, give you the keys and say, hey, you're going to go to Bali, Indonesia. Uh, for for a month and fly missions there. And it would be you, a few other officers, seven or eight enlisted uh, 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 folks, and you would go out and do a mission. So I kind of went towards the mission of being in a team uh, of a group setting, but also uh, I found it intriguing of how you could track submarines from the air. Right, which is in the news right now, uh, of course, with a mini submersible that's, yeah. that's gone missing uh, lately. They've been talking about airplanes, the use of, of military aircraft to help locate uh, this missing submarine. Explain how that works. Yeah, so um, what they'll do is, uh, I think involved in this mission, is they had the um, Canadian P-3s called the Auroras. And the unique thing about the Canadian P-3s, and I think also the Australians, that's actually part of their Air Force. Right. So their Navy doesn't own their P3s. That's an Air Force asset. But they also have a plane out there called a P8, which is a derivative of the P3, which is nothing but a 737 uh, with a little beefier undercarriage and carries weapons and a few other things. So what they're doing is they're flying out there on these missions 
and they're dropping these things called sauna boys, uh, sauna boys. I'm sorry. Uh, the Canadians call them boys. We call them sauna boys. Uh, we, so the, <laughs> it's the accent, I guess. Um, so we drop these uh, sauna buoys and just think of them as a, uh, a microphone hanging from that, you know, they drop down, it parachutes down, and a microphone hangs down at a predetermined distance in the water. And it listens for noise. And uh, there's different types of, of buoys out there. Uh, some just listen, some listen and send out a ping, kind of like a sonar and others give a direction. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to drop these sauna, sauna buoys around. And when you drop them in a certain area, you can triangulate noise. And uh, that's what they're doing. So that's, that's you know, uh, and because there's lots of noise in the water. Um, there's noise from shipping traffic, submarines. There's also noise from whales, shrimp. <laughs> I, I recall one of the most unique things I, I, and I heard was um, dropping my first, sauna, my first sauna buoy out and hearing a clicking, and that was the noise that shrimp make. I'm like, wow, this is so unique, you know? Yeah, so anyway, they're listening toward for the noise uh, or any type of um, sounds that are coming from uh, from the sub, from from the mini-sub. And this interesting story, also Murray County-related, Sonobories were first used in World War II uh, by the Navy, and one of my friends, he's passed away now, his name was David Locke, was uh, on board uh, an aircraft carrier in the Atlantic, and it was his squadron uh, that was the first to use sonobuoys when they were hunting Japanese subs in the Atlantic, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, but uh, kind really? of interesting how, yeah, Mur- Murray County has a, has a connection to your story and, uh, and of course, his as well. Um, I found out your call sign was BD. Right. Where'd, where'd you get that? That that started from... Now, here's the thing about call signs is they kind of gravitate, right? They change over time depending on okay. what you do. And um, my when I was on deployment, my mother used to send me uh, videos and stuff to watch. So, like, um, and it was anything from... One of my favorite shows was Andy Griffith. So, one time I'm sitting in a desert in, in, in uh, Oman and my mother had sent a whole bunch of like Andy Griffith, Red Sam, uh, Fred Sanford, and uh, other movies. So we're watching uh, just the TV shows, and then someone sent a Shaft movie. <laughs> so I used to watch this Shaft movie all the time because I thought it was awesome, you know, uh, Richard Roundtree and kicking and you know having the, the you know the slacks on and the, the shoes, you know, the stacks. And so my call sign started as Shaft, believe it or not, because I used to watch Shaft movies. <laughs> well, then it gravitated towards. Uh, one mission we were flying off of the coast of, uh, I think I was a lieutenant, and the weather was pretty bad. We were down pretty low because P3s, you have to get down pretty low over the water sometimes. Uh, so we were, we were probably down at 200 feet, and it was a rainstorm. It was pretty bad, and um, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of heights, believe it or not. <laughs> but in a plane, it's totally different. In a plane, it's totally different. But So we were down. We were getting thrown around pretty bad. And I want to say there are probably some people that may have been throwing up or something on the plane. And um, I remember they were like, hey, this is pretty bad. And I just kind of said out of nowhere, I said, hey, don't worry. Big Daddy's got you up here. <laughs> and uh, so, th- so that kind of stuck with it. And then it said, uh, uh, hey, that's pretty neat. We're going to start calling you BD. And uh, it, it, because we, we found our way out of the rainstorm and we climbed out and it was sunny weather. And... So that was how it kind of got to BD. Okay. The other thing was on the radio, folks would always say, well, who was I talking to? And I'm like, well, that was me. 
And they're like, no, you're a little guy. That sounded like a big daddy on the radio. That didn't sound like you. And I'm like, no, really, it's me. So that's how I kind of got to BD. <laughs> that's a great story. Uh, you flew with Patrol Squadron VP-46 out of uh, mm-hmm. Naval Air Station Whidbey Island in Washington State. Uh, VP-46 is the oldest American Maritime Patrol Squadron and the second oldest squadron in the entire United States Navy. Describe your time as a Grey Knight in VP-46. Oh, that was that was, uh, that was my first operational tour. And it was in, like you said, Washington State, beautiful area. Um, I can tell you that I went up there kicking and fighting because I wanted to be in the South. You know, everyone wanted to stay in Jacksonville, Florida uh, when you got your wings. Hmm. But um, that was probably the best place that I could have could have went. Uh, myself, uh, my wife, Naima, and my son, Steve. Um, that was our first Navy tour. Beautiful area. Um, a little bit dreary and overcast, but believe it or not, uh, Tennessee at the time averaged, averaged more rainfall per year than Washington State. <laughs> really? So um, I learned a lot. I, um, I was a junior guy in a squadron, so I showed up and I just kind of uh, know how they tell you to shut up and just listen. Right. And um, that's where I honed my skills. Um, a lot of flight hours. I uh, flew a lot of time in. Um, that was the first time I believe I'd actually flown out of country. So the first time I actually was out of the United States was with VP-46. And that was kind of a surreal moment. Uh, first deployment flew up to, uh, we were flying to Japan. But we had to fly to, um, to Alaska, to the Aleutian Islands, hmm. and then Fly, fly to Japan that way. So the first time I'd been out of the country was associated with VP-46, and it was kind of unique to see, hey, you know, kind of in a million years, I never thought that a, that me in Tennessee would ever be, in a, you know, a little guy from Tennessee would ever be uh, in the Navy flying a plane, but then also being in another country. Right, right. Um, so uh, I learned a lot there. I spent about three, three years there. Uh, lots of great flight, lots of great flying time. There's a picture probably somewhere of uh, a VP-46 plane flying near the Space Needle. And uh, that was me and my commanding officer. Really? <laughs> flying, flying near the Space Needle. Uh, another P-3 was taking photos. That was pretty fun. Um, and uh, just an overall great time. That's where I grew, I think, as an officer, uh, as a husband, uh, as a man, you know. Uh, because in the Navy, you, you have an air job, which we know what that is, Naval Flight Officer. But then you also have uh, a ground job. So that's where I learned to become a leader. Right. I had uh, junior sailors working under me. And uh, so, you know, it would be nothing for me to it was long days. I would um, sometimes missions would last up to 10 hours. But, uh, you know, you pre-flight, that's probably two or three hours. You post-flight, that's two or three hours. You fly 10 hours and then you got to come back and you got to work a day job. Right. So, uh, you know, you got paperwork to, to do. You have uh, sailors to take care of. So that's where I that that's probably the tour that kept me in the Navy. Uh, you transferred to VP five, where you were a department head based out of Jacksonville, Florida. So you made it back to back to Florida, uh, if my right. information is correct. What was your role with the Mad Foxes? Right. Yeah, the Mad Foxes. I was a um, department head, so I was a lieutenant commander, or you know, for other services, you call that a major. So um, there was ten or eleven department heads in a squadron, and we reported to the commanding officer, uh, which we call in the Navy professionally a skipper. So I reported to the skipper. That way, so I was just over department. Uh, I was over the operations department there, so handling all the operations, you know, the air crews. Anytime you typically have 10 planes, maybe 11 or 12 crews is 11, 12 people. So kind of the care and feeding of that. And then, you know, um, you got to hone your skills and still be good in the plane. 
So because you want to show these young folks that you can still, uh, you know, go out and right. put the plane where it needs to be and track the sub and, and, and be that guy or gal. So uh, I did that. That was a very good tour also. And, and um, um, it, you know, being in Jacksonville was nice. The reason why I really wanted to be back in Jacksonville was to kind of be closer to Tennessee, you know, so I could be closer to into home. Sure, sure. We need to take our first break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about your very first command uh, and follow your career some more. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless, sparkles like the sun. They are timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm Tom Price. Today we have the great honor of having Admiral Stephen Barnett joining us from Hawaii. And within the studio today, we have my co-host Joanne McClellan with us as well. Uh, We've been speaking with Admiral Barnett about the earlier part of his career. We're moving now to his very first command. You got your first shot as a unit commander when you were assigned commanding officer of VP-47 in Hawaii. Uh, What did your command consist of? Yeah, thank you. Um, Actually, um, you know, this uh, it's kind of ironic. I'm back here in Hawaii where I did my first command tour. So uh, that command consisted of um, 
I had um, uh, about 10 aircraft, about 300 people were in the squadron, about 11 air crew consisting of, of uh, 11, 11 individuals each. So all the maintenance was under my responsibility, the care and feeding of the aircraft, but more importantly, the care and feeding of the sailors uh, assigned to me and, and their families also, you know. So um, that was um, that was a very unique experience. First time in command of a squadron. I'd been in command of an air crew. So typically when you go out and fly, when I was a junior officer, you go out and fly, you would get your own crew and you would be the commanding officer of that crew. But it's a different, uh, it's a little bit different responsibility when you're the commanding officer of a squadron, uh, a little bit more responsibility. So um, very unique. Uh, and I learned a lot in that, uh, in that job also. That's a big jump going from commanding a single airplane crew to commanding, what did you say, 11, 11 aircraft and the crew associated with them. That That's a big jump. I That's how the military does, I, I suppose, as you move up in rank right. and responsibility. But that's a, uh, you're coming a long way from rural middle Tennessee uh, at that point in time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I came a long way from a, a little fella laying in the backyard in Polk Drive in my homemade tent looking up at the moon saying, hey, one day I think I want to be an astronaut you know, <laughs> or, or do something or get in the air and, you know, and I fly. And, and uh, um, I had a little Cub Scout tent used to lay while I was a Weeblo. I was a little, little Weeblo Scout tent and was out there laying up looking at the sky. <laughs> I can tell you that it was what I learned in that tour was it's all about the people. I mean, you can have all these wonderful machines and the Navy has a lot of them, whether they're subs, ships or planes, uh, but they mean nothing if you don't take care of the people that are in them, right? So um, what made that tour hard was, was um, how, do you, how are you a leader in wartime, right? Because we deployed to Japan, as you mentioned, but then we had to do a, a split deployment to Iraq. And when I first joined the squadron, I didn't join them in Hawaii. I actually met them as the executive officer in Iraq. So I left uh, Jacksonville, Florida, worked my way to Iraq, and I'm in Iraq, and I joined the squadron there. So we were flying there, and uh, the plan was, hey, once we come back from deployment, we're never coming back to Iraq again, right? So you know what happened. <laughs> we came back to Iraq again. You know, So half of us was in Japan and half was in Iraq. And um, you know, how do you tell your, your sailors and their families, hey, we're going back into danger? Right. So uh, that's always difficult. But I trusted them. I had trained them and I trained them hard, you know, and I had used uh, the term um, when we were doing inspections and things. I used the old NASCAR. I said, hey, when we are when we are training, we need to think like a, a NASCAR pit crew. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's running. Everybody's, you know, you, know, you got the left tire guy, the right tire guy, the jack guy. You got the fuel guy. But everybody's got a job for that car to get going. We need to think like we're a NASCAR team or we're going to be fast and we're going to be accurate. And um, so we deployed to Japan, but then we forward deployed from Japan to Iraq. So at any given time, I didn't have my full com complement with me. They were spread out, you know, over many, 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 many thousands of miles away. So and it was, um, you know, it, it didn't really hit me until the last day of my command. My wife and daughter flew over to Japan for my change of command and I was sending crews t from Japan to Iraq. So when I sent, you know, I would, I would go on the plane with every crew before they would leave. I would talk to them. 
And I knew this was going to be the last time I would ever see a lot of these folks. Wow. Because I was going to be leaving when they came back. Right. Or something bad could happen over there. So it taught me a lot. When you got to look these young sailors in the face, these male and female sailors, this, you know, the treasure of our country, and say, hey, you know. And I never said them they would never see me again. But, you know, sailors are smart. Sure. They said, hey, sir, when we come back, you're not going to be here. And I said, hey, the, what I want you to realize is that the Navy is bigger. This command is bigger than one person. You know, so, um, and when I told them that, you know, that's when it really hit. I said, hey, this is not, this command is not about me. It's about you. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a picture on the wall. I got it. But that's not my legacy. My legacy is you. Right. My legacy is sending you out, training you up. So I know you're going to come home. So that's what I learned in that first tour, that it's, there's nothing harder. And I, I bet you can talk and you probably have talked to some of our, 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 our folks that are ground pounders, our army and the Marine and the Air Force, and they'll tell you the same way, you know, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you lead folks into danger, into harm's way? I mean, heck, we're, a lot of those folks are flying planes that were older than them. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But they're it's, maintained. It's, a, it's an incredible by, lesson in leadership. By folks and, that are 18. Right. It, it's, it, and it, that right. is a commonality. You're right. We've had, we've had the great honor of interviewing a number of, of military folks here, some pretty high-ranking ones as well, and and that is the commonality. And and maybe what's taught, certainly what's learned by the good officers, are these lessons in leadership that you're talking about. It's about the people at the end of the day, more than it is the assets and the weapons and the the material that you have command of. It's it's the people and how you train them uh, that that matters. Uh, incredible. It was mentioned 250 missions in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. 950 sorties um explain and, and just uh, it's mind-boggling to me the logistics that you had having to command from such long distances and keeping track of material but keeping keeping track of and taking care of your people as well from those distances that's incredible right it, it was um you know you you train your staff you know you i always give folks you know intent and guidance two totally separate things you know our intent is to do this the guidance is to do it on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You know, so I give folks pretty, you know, I train them up, give them the, and the leeway. And the, and the Navy operates on something called command by negation. It's been a tenant for years. It's where a ship could go out overseas and, you, you know, your power is absolute. And, and we'll let you know, we being the leaders, we'll let you know when you're doing something wrong. Because they didn't have text, they didn't have phones, they didn't have radios and things. So you get your orders and you operate within the best uh, within the best guidance and capability that we've trained you up for. So uh, a lot of times I would go, I would visit them and just watch them operate from the back or, you know, and see how they were operating. And that's how I learned that I trained them well. From a logistics point, it is pretty hard. I remember um, one case in particular where um, we were in Iraq and we had flown on a mission, and we would land in Bahrain sometimes. So I like, we like going to Bahrain because you could always stop and, I don't know, get a pizza from Pizza Hut, <laughs> you know, a slice of pizza, get a, get a five-day-old USA Today or something to read and see what's going on back at home. Well, we also would pick up personnel. So I had a young sailor. She was a yeoman. Yeoman's primary cap, uh, jobs are, uh, you know, uh, just think HR type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it never occurred to her that we were flying back into Iraq. Wow. And if you could see the look on this young yeoman's face when she goes, 
uh, well, where are we going? And what, what are those, what, what do you have there? And they were sidearms. We had sidearms, you know, because, and it occurred to me that there are a lot of our folks that aren't prepared for where they're going to go. So it was my job was to educate her and say, hey, hey, young lady, so this is what's going to happen. You're trained for this. You got it. This is your chain of command. This is what we're going to do. So we flew back in. And you know what? Like two weeks later, I bumped into her again in Iraq. And she was an old head. <laughs> she knew everything. She had her sidearm. And she was, you know, she was, she was in a good place. So the big thing is the logistics. And, and I'll tell you that, that I think one of the things is in, in a, being a leader, it's sometimes you got to, or being in the military, uh, sometimes you got to live in different uh, area codes and zip codes. And by that, I mean um, a lot of Navy leaders in particular, uh, their commands are spread out over thousands of miles. And you can't be up whenever everybody else is up. But you got to train your folks with your intent and guidance uh, on what's important and what's not important. And I also am always available. I always tell folks, call me anytime. But, you know, if you have any questions or concerns, call me. But you're trained for this. I'm not telling you not to, to bug me. Bug me when you feel like it. And a lot of times what I've learned is sometimes folks just want to bug you just to voice their opinion or to say something. And then they know the right answer. And they're like, okay, sir, I got it. And I didn't say anything. They've already talked them in their way to the appropriate solution. Right, right. Um, what comprised a typical sortie during Iraqi freedom? Yeah, so our primary job was um, we were, with the, with the P3, we're primarily uh, uh, ASW. So that means we're over water, right? That's our primary job. But we were there to support um, the troops on the ground. And there was a, a various ways that we could support the, the uh, troops there uh, with our radios and other things that we could do to kind of help them. Um, now, a typical sortie would be you wake up in the morning. Um, you would uh, have a, depending on the mission, a three-hour pre-flight, which is pretty long. But you get there, so you go brief. They'll tell you what you're going to do, what you're, what you're, uh, who you're going to be looking at or what you're going to be doing. And then you would... You would go to the plane and start pre-flight. Now, the whole time I'm briefing, there's already a crew out there pre-flighting the plane. You're getting some gas on it. Uh, you know, they're doing all that. So then you would take off and uh, you would go, uh, you know, go wheels up. And then you would do the mission. Uh, the mission could be anywhere. Um, let's just say, uh, depending on what you're actually doing, it could be anywhere from two hours to, you know, I think the longest one I've done is probably 10 hours. Hmm. Uh, which I found out the older I get, the harder those flights are, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, and then you would come back and land and you would debrief and you would do any type of paperwork and then you would, you know, go home and, uh, rinse, uh, lather, rinse again and repeat. <laughs> um, uh, what I'll tell you is that, um, um, one of the things that I liked on the plane was, uh, depending on, uh, as a junior guy, and I loved it because you would, uh, we would get together and we would put our, let's just say we're flying in a, in a, in a country, say we're flying in Bali. And, uh, you know, Lieutenant J.G. Barnett, you know, you're going to be flying over probably lunch and dinner. So we had a Navy chief in the back and he was great to cook. So in between doing his uh, air crew duties, he always had a crock pot. So we would all throw money to the chief and he would, uh, you know, uh. do his chiefly duties and feed <laughs> us. And usually it was some good meal. But that brought us together as a team. You know sure. what I'm saying? So and what I learned this was we go through a lot of simulators to train together, but any good team, particularly in a, in a any good team, a lot of the communications are nonverbal. 
So I had read somewhere that in a P3, that when you are doing at your at your prime, at your best, that air crew, and this applies to anybody, I would think, any team, uh, whether it's a football team, uh, a, a business team, um, 70% of our communication was nonverbal. Hmm. And I'm like, well, how can that be? But we had trained so much together, we knew that if this situation happened, or if we got this indication, we would automatically start doing X, Y, and Z. And I knew that Chief was doing one, two, and three. And I knew that um, the co-pilot was going to do, you know, six, seven, and eight. So a lot of it was situationally dependent that we knew we had trained so long together and so hard together that we didn't have to speak a lot. It was nonverbal. Something as simple as a, uh, a click of a microphone, a double click of a mic can have, can mean a lot of different things. And we would know based on where we, where we were in the process, if that made sense. Yeah. If, if that kind of makes sense. That's interesting. Um, did you lose any people under your command? I'm sorry. Did, did, I'm sorry? You, did you lose any people under your command? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just lost you for a second. Did I lose anyone? Uh, I didn't lose anyone um, uh, to combat. Um, over the years in command, I've lost sailors to um, accidents, um, you know, uh, primarily accidents, maybe a DUI or things like that. Sure. And it's never any easier, you know, it's never any easier. Right. Or motorcycle accidents or things like that. Uh, Admiral Barnett, how did your wife react to all of these sorties and all of these trips away from home base? Yeah, that's a good question. She, um, you know, I, she's a trooper. You know, my family's pretty much a trooper for this. Because, uh, you know, my kids didn't sign up for it. Well, my wife didn't sign up for it either. You know, evidently back in Tennessee State, I was the only one that signed up for it. But <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> yes, As a military you, you wife, I can relate to that. But she was a trooper. And you know what? She's a calming. She's a very, um, she's a uh, psychologist by trade. So she's very calm. And she realized that she was part of, we're a team. This is not just, you know, the, you know, the Steve Barnett show. This is a Steve and Naima show. And um, she reads me like a book. I would like to think I'm a complex book, but she says I'm kind of a simple book. <laughs> and so I wear my emotions on my face. Um, but she, she handled it well. She's a trooper. Um, I will tell you that, um, you know, particularly in command leadership positions, it's important to have that, that spouse there that can, you know, if you have a spouse, you know, to help out with uh, not just, you know, with not just taking, making sure that you're in a good place, but also taking care of the other families. Um, a lot of my tours too have been something called geographical bachelors, which mm -hmm. mean that I stay in one, they stay like when I was in Jacksonville, I, had to, I left Jacksonville to go to a job in D.C. at the Pentagon, and she stayed there because we had a son in high school. Uh -huh. And I, I thought it was more important it was more important for me to not drag him and my daughter, who was in uh, elementary school, around for continual moves. So we left, you know, so there are times where you have to make those hard decisions, and she was a trooper with that. I, I can relate. We, when my husband was in the military, we had to make some hard decisions like that, too. And I wouldn't, they're not for everybody, but I think they paid off. I think it, 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 the one thing I could owe my kids and I always tell them is I owe you the experience of the military, but I also owe you the experience of some type of, you know, I want Stability. you to have the high school, to have a high school where you know, you know, where you have high school classmates where that you can talk to later in life. 
exactly. and the same thing for my daughter. So, so you know, and it's and it's worked out. With command and combat experience, your career path moved you into some very responsible staff positions, including as a detailer at the Bureau of Naval Personnel, where you oversaw the assignments of over 1,000 aviators. So here's that here's that jump again, uh, where you're commanding uh, from, from a, a few dozen to a few hundred, and now you're up to 1,000 aviators. Assistant Joint Requirements Oversight Council Secretariat, Senior Program Analyst for the Chief of Naval Operations, where you monitored Naval Aviation's $137 billion budget, and Deputy Executive Assistant to the Vice Chief of Naval Operations. Uh, these are incredibly responsible uh, uh, positions. Uh, did you feel ready? You know what? I I don't think you never feel ready, to be honest. If someone tells me that they're ready, I'm, I'm, um, I'm skeptical of that. Huh. I think that uh, it's okay to be a little bit... Uh, like I tell, um, I try to check in every one of my sailors that comes into my command. And I tell them, it's a little okay to feel apprehensive. I've been, I've been, we've been moving around for years. And every command, when I get to, I still feel a little bit anxious. I feel a little bit skeptical. And that's, that's, that's what you want. But uh, I felt that um, I was, I knew I could do the job. I knew I had the tools in my tool belt. I equate the, the Navy and, and life as the same thing. I always tell folks throw as many throw as many tools in your tool bag as you can because you don't know what you're going to need in the future so i've been exposed to a lot of different things that i didn't know would help me when i got further and um um every every um every job i had i felt like that the navy had prepared me but i just needed to go back in the memory banks or look in the tool belt so to speak or the tool bag to say hey i remember the time i did this or you know and everything was a stepping stone so um, I was, uh, I was happy to have all those jobs, uh, you know, and I th think they, if it hadn't have been for there, I'm a firm believer of having a diverse plate of, you know, in a career, a lot of my counterparts want to, and I love flying. They want to just fly, 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 fly all the time. I love flying, but I also wanted to, to do some other things, uh, to compete. I'm a very competitive person. I wanted to compete with other aviators, other officers. So that's kind of what drew me out of, uh, out of, uh, aviation for a little bit to kind of, you know, uh, uh, just compete at other ways. So Which is an important I really enjoyed point. all the tools. Uh, I think you're competing against a lot of uh, other naval officers who are coming out of uh, the United States Naval Academy, for instance. They're, they're yeah. trained. Yeah. You didn't take that pass, but here you are an admiral, and you're grinning. Our, our audience won't be able to see you uh, doing <laughs> that. But uh, talk, talk to us for a, a second about that, that, that – that side between professional uh, Navy guys who go through the Naval Academy versus your path and what that means as you move through the ranks. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because a lot of folks think, hey, so when did you graduate from the Academy? I'm like, I didn't. I'm a uh, six-week wonder. I went to Aviation Officer Candidate School and got yelled at by a drill instructor, and now I'm here. But, um, you know, uh, and I got to tell you, my son actually had a, had a scholarship, had a football offer uh, scholarship to the Naval Academy. Uh, years mm -hmm. ago. But um, that opportunity, you know, I really wasn't aware that that opportunity was out there um, when I was coming up, but I never saw it as a, uh, a as a, as a detriment um, to, um, to where I am. Uh, I, I will be honest and tell you that there are some things that I didn't necessarily know. You know, I didn't grow up in the Navy like the folks at the Naval Academy did. So uh, the ramp up for me to learn Navy history and things like that, and like, hmm, like, until this day, I'll be on a on a base. I'm like, wow, 
why is this street called this? And then I'll look and see, oh, that was the battle of that. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so I'm still learning. There are some things that I didn't get because uh, I didn't go to the academy. But I tell you what, I'm a fast learner, and uh, 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 I definitely love history. So I don't think it. I don't think it hurt me. I think it motivated me that I have to catch up with my uh, uh, contemporaries. And then the other thing I'll I'll tell you this is uh, um, what I love about the military is we are a performance based organization, right? And I tell my folks, I don't care where you went to school, but I'm biased towards performance. Right. So, uh, you know, I didn't care to my sailors uh, or my officers that they went to the academy. I just wanted that plane to go up and come back with <laughs> with my sailors on it. Right. And I didn't care where you went to school. Tennessee State, <laughs> Naval Academy, um, uh, you know, Vanderbilt and you name it. I just want you to come back. We need to take our second break. We are speaking with Admiral Stephen Barnett and we'll continue our conversation when we come back. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hoods for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Our guest today is Admiral Stephen Barnett, a native of Columbia, Tennessee. He has had a stellar career in the United States Navy. I'm joined in the studio by Joanne McClellan, my co-host. Admiral Barnett, uh, following those positions that we've talked about already, you received your first star and took command of Navy Region Northwest. Uh, That command covers a a huge uh, swath of the United States, the entire Midwest and the northwestern portion of the United States from Idaho to Alaska with an operating budget of over $10 billion. Uh, What does that command entail? 
What does that feel like? Let, let me ask this question first. What did it feel like to get that star? Yeah, it. You know, it was it was very unique because I didn't stay in the Navy to be an admiral. I didn't. Like I told you, when I first joined, we needed child care. Well, we needed money. I needed health care for the kid, you know, or for Steve. I don't want to say I called him a kid. Um, um, and my intent was I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a good time. And then after maybe five or six years, I'll get out. So it was kind of surreal when I was selected for flag because I never did anything I thought to be a flag officer. Hmm. Uh, some folks try to line up the perfect career. I didn't. I went to where my mentor suggested I could go. I ran towards contact. And by that, I mean, I ran towards hard jobs and hard things to do to kind of press to test myself. And uh, so when I was selected for Admiral, it, it was surreal because I, I didn't really, you know, I've been trying to get out since I was a lieutenant. <laughs> so obviously I failed. <laughs> obviously I failed that. But, um, and, and, and getting that first job and being back into the place where, you know, my first operational tour was in that area and my first tour as an admiral was in that area. So um, I like to say that I, um, it, it, it is a big area, but I had an awesome staff. Uh, and that's what I try to test the folks, you know, t- or tell folks all the time that behind me stands, uh, uh, you know, a staff of, of hundreds wherever I've been that are doing all the hard work. And I'm just there as a leader to remove barriers. Is, mm-hmm. and, 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 and that's what I project. You know, folks like to draw the leadership diamond like a pyramid where the boss is on the top and the people on the bottom. I flip that model. Hmm. I'm on the bottom. I'm here to remove barriers to work for the folks up up in up top. That's amazing. Um, what are the hardest challenges that you have as a region commander? How, how does that differ uh, from the other commands that you've had? As we said, right. it's a huge budget. It's a huge area that you're right. in, in control of. Um, explain, explain how you do it. Yeah. Um, like I said, I've got a great staff. One of the things I'll tell you is that what this job has differently than a non, that other, uh, fl- I'll say, flag or general officer jobs don't have or command jobs is that uh, you're engaging a lot with, with the public, right? Okay. Um, I-, I would tell you that uh, the majority of my time is spent, whether it's engaging with regulators, uh, the public, uh, uh, whether it's governor, you know, the you know state legislators, state legislatures and things like that. So uh, that was something that was new to me. Um, uh, that happened when I was, uh, I think this is my fifth or sixth command tour. Uh, when I was a commanding officer of an installation, I used to say that 70% of my time was outside the fence line and 30% was on the inside the fence line. Hmm. Um, my job now is to balance um, the fleet requirements because having an operational background, um, you know, I kind of have to know uh, what the fleet needs and make sure that our installations uh, are supportive of that, you know, make no mistake about it. You know, I, we are here to support the fleet and their families, whether it's through childcare, whether it's through housing, whether it's through uh, 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 medical security, um, and then support the fleet by also whether it's piers and runways and things like that. So it's uh, uh, it, it's a and it's a lot, uh, but I got a great team that that and it kind of keeps us focused and uh, keeps us going. So, but I love the job. From Navy Region Northwest, you went to Navy Region Southwest, also a, a huge area. Explain explain the territory for that one. Yeah, that territory was uh, <clears throat> that was primarily more of an aviation territory, okay. and I'll say that because a lot of the installations there uh, have. Or, or squadrons where you have Naval Air Station Lemoore, China Lake, and other places. So, uh, whereas up north in the Pacific Northwest, 
it, it was a smaller region, but it had a, uh, and by that I mean a, sm a smaller fleet concentration area, but the fleet concentration area in San Diego is second in the, second in the world behind Norfolk. So, uh, and it's a lot of aircraft there. It's a lot of submarines, there's a lot of ships, and um, it spread from California to where Arizona, to Nevada, to uh, New Mexico, and all the facilities that are associated with there, whether it's an, you know, where there's an ROTC facility, you know, everything like that. So, a um, little bit different of a challenge uh, that that than the Northwest, but some things that that are common, uh, things like uh, whether it's environmental concerns. Uh, obviously, family concerns are still the same. You know, you want to make sure that your families have child development centers and 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 places to live. Uh, so I was only there for a little bit less than eleven months. Okay. Until I got sent out here to Hawaii. So your Navy region, Hawaii, how does it differ from the other two regions that you commanded? Yeah, this one is um, first. It's 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 great being back in the lovely state of Hawaii. Uh, it's always beautiful here, so I always make sure I rub that into folks. Matter of fact, I've got I have there's a there's a trail of Tennesseans that come here all the time. I've got folks that come through to visit all the time. <laughs> um, the thing that's different about here is, for lack of better terms, we're a little bit closer to the fight. You know, um, we are overseas, and uh, it's a different mindset than when you're our uh, CONUS. Uh, we're a little bit closer to. Um, uh, um, what I would like to say is, you know, whether it's it's China, uh, Russia, things like that. So it's a little bit different. You know, you're a little bit closer to the front lines, if you know what I mean. Right, you know? right. So it's a little bit it's a little bit different mindset here. So readiness levels are maybe a little bit more strict than they were when you're back on the continent. Exactly, and I think we can, you know, we can say, you know, you got to be uh, ready to fight tonight. You know, so so you know, because uh, we're the first defense for the homeland, right? You know. And, and that's historically. Every day I look out here, I look at this beautiful mountain range, and you know, you know, and I look at the history of Pearl Harbor and Dory Miller and things like that. You know, this is, you know, you know, we're here to protect the homeland. Yeah, um, if I have my information correct, you've recently been promoted to. Uh, you've gotten your second star now. Uh, yes, sir. So I, I, I will. I am still waiting for uh, confirmation, but okay. Um, we'll see. Um, once that happens, uh, I've been blessed to. Uh, to uh, be employed for another three years, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. That's that's r really incredible and 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 uh, incredibly impressive. Uh, what's in store for you moving forward? How long do you um, plan on being in? How many stars gonna are you going to accumulate? <laughs> well, I'll take as many as the Navy gives me, and my wife lets me take. Okay. So, <laughs> good answer. So, um, she, um, I, you know, we're a team, and I run everything by her. Uh, I imagine. I will be out here until the Navy tells me to go to another another duty station. Uh, no idea where that'll be next. Um, I do have a unique skill set as far as being having an operational background, but also having an installation and a region background. You know, we've moved three times in three years, oh, and wow. and um, um, so that's the one thing about being a Navy admiral or a, or a flag officer. I mean, or general. You know is that uh, the expectation is that, uh, you know, at a moment's notice, you have to, you know, pick up and move to the next duty station or to whatever the needs of the Department of Defense are. So, um, yeah, we moved three years in Northwest. I was there for only 11 months. In Southwest, I was there for a little bit less than 10. So this is uh, this is the longest I've pretty much been in a place. Hmm. Uh, um, and what, what that does, though, is that makes you have to have um, – 
when I come into a, a new job, I, I don't have a lot of time to ramp up. So I have to uh, study quick and then exponentially move out with speed towards stuff. And one of the things that I've done is that I've learned, there's three things that I usually tell my folks, and I've learned this over my five or six command tours, particularly as a, as a flag officer, is uh, I usually tell folks three things when I check them in. I'm like, hey, we don't have a lot of time together. That's the first thing. Well, that's not really the first thing, but that's the scene setter. And then the first thing I tell them is what I need each of you to, to do, and this is for my uniform sailors or my civilian sailors, is the first thing I need you to do the right thing. Okay? Hmm. Um, and the right thing uh, is easier said than done. That's the right, just do the right thing. Uh, the second thing that I tell them is to be loyal. And I don't necessarily mean be 100% loyal to the boss. Being loyal to me is telling me when I got a blind spot, hmm. you know? Being loyal to me is telling me, hey, sir, you may want to look at this or, you know, I think you glossed over this. You need to come back and look at this, sir. So I got to be approachable for that. But be loyal to yourself. Be loyal to them, your family. If you do those two things, then you'll be loyal to the mission and you'll be loyal to me. So that's what I try to stress to folks. And then the third thing that I, that I, that I continually stress to people is holistic well-being, whether that's um, taking, you know, spiritually, emotionally, academically, all the Lee words. Uh, make sure you're taking care of yourself. Make sure you're taking care of your brain health. Make sure you're taking your leave. Make sure you're you're spending time with your family and making those memories. You know, uh, so those are the three things that I try to stress to people that I think have helped me whenever I get to a region to kind of ramp up quickly and to let the folks know what I'm thinking about. Admiral Barnett, unfortunately, we're out of time. This has been a great honor. Uh, I, I've learned so much uh, in this brief conversation with you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and thank you for your service to our country. Absolutely. Please know that your home community follows your career with great pride. We end today's episode with a quote from Admiral Samuel Lee Gravely, Jr., the first African-American admiral. Success in life is the result of several factors— my formula is simply education plus motivation plus perseverance. I'd like to thank my co-host Joanne McClellan for joining us today. And as always, thank you, our listeners. You can now hear all of our History's Hook episodes online at FrontPorchRadioTN.com and wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week, won't you, as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. 
This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM FM, Columbia, Tennessee.